Well, the last time that we were together, we contemplated Ecclesiastes 1.9, which says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. And there's nothing new under the sun. And after discussion and, and considering this passage, we kind of concluded that to some degree society is generally the same way it has always been. What we're seeing in our country today in our society and our nation is not a whole lot different than what has happened in the past. There's nothing new under the sun. All of culture and humanity in general is striving against God due to our sinful nature. And we can see this working out uh, in our day-to-day -day actions, uh, the way we speak, the way we interact, uh, the things that we do. Uh, is, as a society, as a, as a group, is, is a rebellion against God and his standards, his commands, and his statutes. So with that in mind, I wanted to open up a study on the book of Judges. So we said that the narrative contained in the book of Judges were written for a purpose. And we w went over this last time as well, that purpose is to bear witness or to testify to the person and work of Jesus and the great salvation that he's achieved for his people. The horrible, sinful nature that is described in the book of Judges is outshined by the glory of God's salvation that has worked through these judges. And these judges are, in their own ways, pointing us towards the wonders of Jesus Christ. It was my desire to lay some groundwork in preparation for our study of this book. So we took some time to open up what and why the Canaanite Baal worship was so offensive to God. We looked at that last time, sharing the fact that it's at its core nothing more than what we are facing today in the philosophy of secular humanism. The church and society are dealing with this the same way that the time period of the judges was dealing with it. And that uh, I mentioned the fact last time that you could say that the book of Judges is God's war on humanism. So today I would like to continue to lay some groundwork that will help us in our study of this uh, often ignored book. <coughs> and hopefully this um, preparation will uh, make our study a little bit easier. Uh, we might have be able to go a little bit deeper with that study. So um, to begin with, um, who is the author of Judges? Well, from a Christian perspective, we would say that God is the author who uh, wrote this book. Uh, he wrote all of the Bible. But I think the most likely candidate for divinely inspired um, human authorship is probably Samuel. As we shall see, one of the major themes in Judges is that there is no human king in Israel. After Moses and Joshua, there was a vacuum of human leadership. 
And the people were supposed to recognize God, the Father, as, as their king. When they did not, then chaos ensued. It is Samuel who made the great speech against the tyranny of human kings in 1 Samuel 8. So it is very easy to see that perhaps God had moved upon Samuel to prepare this book of Judges as a writing to explain the times that they were living through. So I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. I, I have uh, most of the other uh, sources I've looked at also decided that Samuel was probably the most likely candidate. I'm going to take a look at, little bit look at how to interpret some of the writings in the book of Judges. Uh, Judges, like all the so-called history books of the Old Testament, is really a prophecy. Judges is part of what are sometimes called the former prophets. That term, former prophets, is used in the Hebrew Bible. And it wasn't so much that these uh, people were foretelling the future as it was that they were looking at the past and then determining that there could be a better present. So what often these uh, former prophets would do, and this would include Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, what they were attempting to do is to look at the past, think about a better uh, present, a more righteous present, a more fair, kind, and loving present, and they would preach uh, accordingly uh, with that in mind. Um, and they would preach with one thing in particular, that if you followed God's commandments, if you followed his statutes, you would be blessed. If you did not follow his commandments and statutes, judgment would come. With that as their underlying theme, they would be preaching the histories of Israel in an attempt to make a better uh, present situation. So if we read Judges merely as a set of exciting stories, we might miss this concept of divine warnings and prophecy. While they are exciting and, and there are some very heroic moments in it, there is also a greater, uh, uh, a deeper meaning, uh, I believe, that can be obtained through that. To get at a prophetic meaning, we need to have some understanding of interpreting biblical narratives. So first we have to take seriously that these histories do, in fact, show God's principles. That's why these prophets preach the history. God's principles were underlying uh, some of the things that were uh, that have come about in the history of Israel. And any failure to obey these principles will result in prophetic warnings. It could be a positive warning of blessing, or it could be a negative warning of judgment. For instance, the first enemy who invades Israel in the book of Judges is the basic, in its basic translation, is pronounced, is described as Kushan of double witness, wickedness. And they were from Aram of double river. Now, <clears throat> what does that mean? 
Well, apparently double wickedness is, it means that there's two things that's going to be nasty and, and bad happening here. And the people that are going to deliver that difficult things, that those, those wickednesses are coming from a place that have a double river. And again, if you're familiar with the geography here, that's going to be the Tigris and Euphrates. And the land between the Tigris and Euphrates is often referred to as Mesopotamia. So what is the prophecy here? Well, if the people do not live righteously, if they do not live according to God's command and his statutes, then the enemy will come from Mesopotamia. And in fact, it did. First, Assyria conquered the northern Israel, and later Babylon conquered southern Israel. So that even the idea of twofold destruction came to pass, the double wickedness. So we see the prophecy being fulfilled here. We also have to realize that sometimes these prophecies are vague. We may not pick up on their meaning or their lessons right away. There's nothing wrong with vagueness. Uh, we have a English uh, language that includes vague words as well as words that are much more specific in their meaning. For example, to tell someone that a room is large is vague compared to telling them the dimensions of the room is 12 by 120 by 120 feet. Yet, when we use the word large, it conveys information better than the specific dimensions of the room. So there's nothing wrong with vagueness. Some of the parables of Jesus were very specific, such as the wedding feast uh, described in Matthew 22, 1 through 13. You can read that and, and, and see what he was aiming at very specifically, while others of his parables were more vague and more generalized. Sometimes the disciples would have to ask him, what do you mean by that? It was, it did not, they had a vague understanding. And this is also true with the stories of the Old Testament. Some events are clearly and pointedly symbolic, while some are very vague and general in nature. So when we read the book of Judges, we have to realize that we may be approaching some things here that uh, have a deeper meaning that are, we have to kind of dig out. Now having said that, we can't go to the extremes here when trying to interpret scripture. Like in government, we need some checks and balances when we start interpreting scripture. This means that uh, as we look at these Old Testament narratives, we can't uh, read into it something that may not be there. For instance, uh, for the five loaves and two fishes and the feeding of the multitude, does that represent the five books of Moses in the Old and New Testament? Probably not. You don't, you don't want to go to extreme in interpreting these things. So what is our checks? What is our balance? Well, we have to look at the rest of Scripture. Remember, when we uh, interpret Scripture, it's best to interpret it with other Scripture. So let's take a look at this and give an example. So turn to Judges 1, 
Judges 1, and we're going to look at uh, verses 11 through 15. Uh, Mr. Middleton, would you read those verses for me, please? 11 through 15. you know why I asked you to read it, because my tongue would never get through all of that. <laughs> we have here the story of Othniel and Achaeus. We have here the characters. Uh, there's a city that needs to be conquered. Um, and in that city, if you recall, uh, there were living giants, and this is one of the things that... Uh, uh, bothered the uh, the first uh, uh, group of people that were going to inhabit the promised land. They, they didn't want to go up against the giants. So that was the enemy. And the father is Caleb, one of the ones who came back uh, with a good report of the promised land. And the son, Othanel, and the daughter, uh, Achaish. And there were two other factors here. We see the springs and then we see a donkey. The um, crux of the story, if you want to interpret it this way, is, is that the son destroys the enemy in order to win the bride. And the bride is offered by the father. So I think we can see as we interpret this uh, a vague image of the gospel here. We've got uh, Jesus the son destroying Satan going to crush his head. And in return, the father gives a group of people to the son, which becomes the church. Uh, so we can see this gospel narrative underlying what was happening here, uh, what would happen uh, sometime down the road. After the marriage, we find the bride asking the father for springs of water. We might be able to see a vague image here of the church asking for to receiving the Holy Spirit. So some of the interpretations are very clear. Some of them you may have to look at and dig out a little bit more. But we want to be careful in how we do that. Uh, we want to be able to balance it with other parts of Scripture. The next study help uh, in the book of Judges would be to keep in mind that the interaction between God and man. To help understand judges, we ask three questions. 
What is God's word of promise or command? What is man's response to those promises or commands? Is it rebellion? Is it faithfulness? And what is God's word of evaluation? Will there be judgment or will there be blessings? So as we look at the book of Judges, we can ask these questions over and over again to see uh, what God is trying to teach us from these things. Most biblical narratives contain all three elements. Sometimes the word of promise or command is not expressed uh, in writing, but it's implied because it's part of the law of God. So that is the background uh, of, the, of the books, um, of the later uh, writings in the Bible. Those can be applied as well. So for every promise is a command, and for the faithful man knows that it, he needs to pursue the blessings in that promise. And every command is a promise, for God will always bless those who submit to his commands. So we'll see this in the book of Judges uh, over and over and over again. We then come to man's response. Men are either faithful or rebellious, and sometimes there's a mixture of both. And the third, we come to God's evaluation of ju or judgment, which entails either a curse or a blessing. So again, here are some examples. Adam was given a command and a promise. He rebelled against that command. And then God came to judge him. The whole humanity or human race as a whole is given commands. Obey my, my law. Obey my uh, 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 statutes. And we can see throughout all of human history the response to that. And that response is to rebel against uh, God and to do evil in his sight. And we know that the white throne judgment will eventually be the end of, result of, of um, this rebellion. So we can see it, these things in a broad perspective as well as much more narrow uh, in some of the books of the Bible. Um, Abraham was given a command. God said, move to Canaan. Abraham obeyed. And when he arrived in Canaan, God met him and blessed him. And God gave him his next order, which Abraham obeyed. And God blessed him and then gave him his next order, and so on and so forth. So we see that if we use these three questions as we go through Judges and some of the other um, books of the Bible, we'll have a greater understanding of uh, what is happening in Scripture. The next study help uh, is to take note of is um, the larger covenant historical context of the book. We've said in the past that context is one of the key elements in having a clear understanding of biblical teachings. 
The Bible presents one basic mega theme over and over again with variations each time designed for our own instructions. It's a, it's a very broad mega theme. It is creation, fall, decline, judgment, and recreation. We see this in a broad perspective throughout Scripture, and we'll see it in a narrower perspective uh, in other books, but in particular the book of Judges. <clears throat> this pattern happens in three very large uh, historical context uh, during the Old Covenant. The first occurrence is the creation of the world. Then we see the fall of Adam. And then we see the decline of humanity recorded in Genesis 6. And then the judgment is the flood. And then we see the recreation in the days of Noah. The second occurrence of this pattern or this theme uh, begins with recreation uh, after the flood. This recreation takes the same form as the first one. First, the wider world is made. In Genesis 1.1, it was in the beginning God created the, the worlds. And in Genesis 10, after the flood, we see the growth of these nations coming about that are the descendants of Noah's uh, family. And then we see a sanctuary set up. In Genesis 2, the sanctuary was Eden. And in Genesis 12, we see that it's the promised land given to Abram. The creation section continues until Israel is fully settled into the land when David finally uh, conquers all of it. And then comes the fall starting with Solomon and the progressive decline until the exile. And when the new Adams and Eves are once again cast out of God's sanctuary, taken into exile. We see this pattern re starting to repeat itself with the recreation, starting with Daniel and Ezra. And the third occurrence of this pattern begins with uh, recreation again with Daniel and the reestablishment of the temple by Ezra. The big fall comes when God's people crucify the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. The decline continues until A.D. 70 and issues in the destruction of the sanctuary, the temple. And the final third recreation is the establishment of the church. The church is permanent. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that's the three um, mega themes that we see throughout uh, the Bible. We'll see this in a smaller version when we look at Judges. We'll see it uh, in a uh, miniature version. Judges records the fall and decline and judgment of Israel. And also in Samson and in the last chapter the beginning of the recreation it begins as an important structure of this book or understanding this book. So that's something we want to keep in mind. In the last study hint I want to mention only in passing, um, pay close attention to specific details in the text. I don't believe God wastes words. 
God has absolute control of events, and every detail he records in the text is to be looked at with some significance and importance. For instance, Judges 9.53, it does not say someone threw a stone and it hit Abimelech, so he was dying. Rather, it says a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Details are important in this study. That was that it was a woman, that it was a stone, that it was a millstone, and that it hit and crushed his head. Again, you can uh, look at some possible interpretations. We see a couple of times in the book of Judges where the enemy's head was crushed, much like Satan crushing the head of Satan, or Christ crushing the head of Satan. So again, let me summarize. Uh, First, these histories and facts show God's principles, and any failure to obey those principles will result in prophetic warnings of blessings or judgment. Second, a study help is that these prophecies may be vague. We may not pick up on their meanings of their lessons right away. The third study help in uh, this book of Judges would be to keep in mind the interaction between God and man. What is God's word of promise or command? What is man's response to that promise or command, his rebellion or faithfulness? And what is God's word of evaluation? Is it going to be judgment or is it going to be blessing? And again, the fourth uh, is to keep in mind the mega theme of Creation, fall, decline, and judgment, and recreation. So we want to watch for these elements in the book of Judges. So I'm going to pass out a handout that has some of these things on him, so you can refer back to them. Brother Montry, would you pass these out, please? On the last page, we have um, a reprint of what I passed out last week dealing with the secular humanism versus Christian worldview. There's a um, couple of ways you could look at the book of Judges. Um, I I found this to be probably the um, easiest thing to approach it this way. The stories are recounted and Judges come in five sets of pairs. Uh, This pairing of or doubling is common Uh, in the Bible, and Brother Cliff Middleton has pointed this out to us in the reading of uh, the Proverbs, how these things are coupled together. So we see that again repeated here. It's an outline, an overview of judges in in terms of of these pairs. 
And you can see there, there are two introductions. Um, there are two excellent judges, and two unlikely judges, um, two compromised judges. And then <clears throat> there is a kind of a bracket in the book of Judges where they talk about some very minor judges that uh, do not have a lot of detail with them. That's uh, in uh, chapter 10 and 12. And then finally, the two outcomes of Israel's decline. Uh, that's at the end in chapter 17 and 18 and 19 and 21. As a result of, of this, so you can peruse uh, that outline is what we're going to kind of look at. Um, I'd like to make a final comment here dealing with the theology that we find in Judges. Um, in terms of its theology, the book of Judges presents God for the most part in two basic aspects. The first is uh, that he is Lord or Yahweh. God told Moses in Exodus 6, 3, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Lord or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This does not mean that the patriarchs did not use the name Yahweh or Lord but that God had not made clear the meaning that would accompany this, uh, his, word, his name. God appeared to the patriarchs as God Almighty, the God who creates covenants, the God who makes promises. At the Exodus, God appeared to Israel as the Lord, Yahweh, the God who continues or establishes his covenant and who keeps his promises. He brought him out of bondage. He brought him to the promised land. Turn over in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out of, from under the labors of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from the, their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great judgments. Then I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, you brought, you, who brought you out from under the labors of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. We see here the uh, detailed exposition of his name, the Lord, one who brings 
the people out of bondage. Verse 6. One who marries them or covenants with them. Verse 7. And one who gives them land of promise to them. In verse 8. That further defines him as who he is and what he plans to do. The name Lord then has to do with God's faithfulness in the face of man's unfaithfulness. It has to do with the land God promised and the conquest of that land. It has to do with God's marriage to Israel. And it has to do with the bondage and deliverance that he promised to release them from the Egyptians, deliver them from that. There are major themes in Judges, and this is why Lord or Yahweh is the name for God used here. You might say that the book of Judges is really, on a whole, a large-scale explanation of the meaning of the name Lord. The second term used to refer to God in Judges is angel of the Lord. The angel is the one who goes before the people as a captain of the Lord's host to lead them into the land. The angel of the Lord thus appeared to Joshua at the beginning of the conquest, Joshua 5.13. In Judges, God manifests himself as an angel when (coughs) he judges the people of Gilgal for their unfaithfulness in the conquest. That's in Judges 2, 1 through 4. When he appears to Gideon to summon him to war for the land. Judges 6, 11. And when he appears to the wife of Manoah to announce the birth of Samson, the deliverer. In Judges 13, 3 through 21. So that's two different types of views of God that we find here in the book of Judges. Well, i got a few minutes here. Let's begin our journey through the book of Judges. So turn back to Judges 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 2. There are two introductions to the book of Judges. The first is a historical introduction showing the great works of God and the not-so-great works of man. The second introduction is a thematic one. Uh, This first section in the book of Judges displays very obviously the threefold pattern uh, that we already went over. First, there is God's command to conquer Canaan. Then there's a whole series of human responses to that command. And then finally, in uh, chapter 2, 1 through 5, there comes the evaluation of the Lord, uh, judgment, and restoration. So let's take a look at these first two verses. And now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites 
to fight against them. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have handed the land over to him. I don't know, some of your uh, translations begin in verse 1 with the word and. Um, this is a connection back to the book of Joshua. It's a continuation of where Joshua left off. And this is what happened. Okay. It came about after, okay, let me get my place here. So Judges opens. God has already commanded Israel to conquer Canaan. Uh, Judges is a continuation of Joshua, as I just explained. Now at the beginning of the book, the people inquire as to which tribe should lead the war against the Canaanites. And the Lord replies that Judah should go up first, for I've given the land into his hands. The procedure for this inquiry can be found in Numbers 27, 18 through 21. They were to consult with the high priest who wore the ephod, the breastplate, um, of jewels. And each one of those jewels represented a tribe of Israel. So some biblical scholars think that God caused a particular jewel to light up or maybe give off some heat uh, in answer to their question um, as to who should lead up the battle. Numbers 27:21 forbids Israel to go into battle without consulting the ephod first. So the question then arises, and we've kind of alluded to this last time, was it right for God to command the destruction of the Canaanites? And we kind of concluded that, yes, uh, it was correct, Based on the prophecy of Genesis 15:16, God knew that these people were going to uh, become uh, evil in the sight of God and that they uh, needed to be dealt with. And that's why they delayed 400 years until the people came out into the promised land, until the Canaanites became overflowing with evil and needed to be dealt with. Um, it's very similar to what happened during the flood. That evil civilization had reached its uh, capacity of evil, and God wiped them out just the way he would wipe out the Canaanites. So, yes, it was, it was appropriate. God's command was that the Canaanites should be completely driven out or slaughtered, one way or another, the completely removed from the land. The initial conquest of the land under Joshua had been completed and the land had been parceled out into the tribes. And what was left was an extended mopping up operation to clear the land completely of the human evil of the Canaanites. There wasn't just one king of the Canaanites. These people, like in the Sparta or Athens, they set up what they called city-states. And so they were little kingdoms all over the countryside uh, isolated um, without one overruling king. If Joshua went in and captured the king and he, he 
was defeated and killed, and that could have been the end of it. But that wasn't the end. Joshua did the pretty much major work, and now it's going to be up to tribes to go into their land that was assigned to them to mop up what was left over these city-states and their territories. So we see here that Judges opens up with a command from God, destroy the Canaanites, take the land completely, and I will be with you to protect you and ensure your success. How will Israel respond to the word from God? Well, predictably, God says that the uh, royal tribe uh, of Judah should go up first. And, of course, the royal tribe from which David and later Jesus would come is going to lead the battle uh, in, in this uh, fight against the Canaanites. The text says that the land had been given into his hand, indicating that the preeminent place of Judah is the ruling tribe over all the land through the coming king, Jesus Christ, David, and his line. So thus we turn first to the activities of Judah after the death of Joshua. And that's where I'll pick it up sometime in the new year, I guess. So any thoughts, comments, or questions? A lot to digest there. Well, if not, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word, that you would reveal to us from your word through your spirit the truths that you would have us to learn. We thank you for the freedom we have to gather as a church to study your word. And Lord God, we pray that uh, we would uh, be not only hearers of the word, but doers as well that, Lord, you have given us promises and commands that we might follow, that our, would be obedience to your statutes, and that, Lord, we would find not judgment but blessing from your hand. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We need to have your help and, and guidance from your spirit. So we pray that you be with our church here, and we, that you would encourage our church, our flock. We thank you for our shepherd. So, Lord God, may we uh, be bold in the, uh, in the evil society that we find ourselves in. May we stand firm in our faith. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.